An author writes, a minority religious group provokes curiosity among their neighbors because of their habits concerning ritual and prayer. Their women are conspicuously veiled. They gather daily for meetings whose mysterious conduct and message lead to anxiety amongst the establishment. They stop even in their daily routine to pray facing a specific direction and using a set formula given by their founder as a mark of their faith. Now for many, this imagery evokes the prayer practice of the Muslim faith. But what the author is actually writing about is the prayer practice of the early church. The early church was built on prayer. The early church was driven by prayer. The early church was devoted to prayer. The early church revolved around prayer. Tonight, I wanna ask you, what is your faith built upon? What practice is your faith built upon? What practice is your life built upon? There's been much study recently around the idea of habit and a lot of scientific study and research has gone into the effects of habits and practices and rhythms on our life. And that evidence indicates that all of us have one core practice, one core thing that we do that actually ends up driving everything else that we do. What is that core practice for you? Tonight is one of those nights where I really want for you to like lean in and maybe like get on the edge of your seat and maybe like perk up a little bit tonight and really lean in tonight and contemplate whether or not what you're getting ready to hear should not just shift and change the practice of your faith, but if what you're getting ready to hear should actually change and shift the very way of your life. For a second, what I want to do is I want it to feel like you are drinking from a fire hydrant on how important it is to pray, okay? I want for you to be overwhelmed by the significance of prayer. So everybody take a deep breath, just real quick. Now breathe it out. Now touch your neighbor and say, are you ready? Now touch your other neighbor who maybe hasn't come to Elevate City as often and say, you're not ready. Now I want for you to grab a pen in your hand, grab a pen in your hand, get ready to take notes because how many of you know that people who take notes get bigger mansions in heaven? <laughs> and here we go. The Bible records Jesus praying 25 different times throughout the gospels. John 17 is an entire chapter of the Bible that is devoted to Jesus praying. Luke chapter five, verse 16 says this, Jesus often, meaning regularly, consistently, habitually, withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So if you could imagine being Jesus' disciples, like I've just got to imagine that a lot of times they were hanging out with Jesus and then all of a sudden they'd be like, where'd he go? And do you know where he was? He was praying. He often withdrew consistently, habitually to lonely places to pray. Luke 6, 12 says it like this. One of those days, Jesus went on to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. Meaning at least one night, Jesus prayed all night. All night long, he prayed. Isaiah chapter 50 verse four is a beautiful messianic prophecy about Jesus's life. And it says this, it says, morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Indicating, come with me on this, that every morning Jesus didn't just get up to pray, but to pray is the very reason that Jesus woke up. He woke up for the, I gotta pray. Like he didn't wake up because he had to go to work or because an alarm went off. He's like, oh, it's time to pray. I need to talk to the father. And that's the very reason that Jesus woke up. Luke chapter nine, verse 28, gives us this unbelievable picture of what happens when we pray. And I don't know what you think happens when you pray, but this is what the Bible says can happen when we pray. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Jesus hiked a mountain for one purpose, to 
pray. And as he was praying, this is what happens during prayer. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzling white. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Now, I really want for you to think about this for a second. The disciples, they saw Jesus in the flesh. They saw him up close and personal. And they saw him do some pretty miraculous things. They saw Jesus walk on water. They saw Jesus calm a storm. They saw Jesus give sight to blind Bartimaeus. They saw Jesus take a little boy's Lunchable and feed 5,000 people. They saw Jesus command the wind and the waves. And yet the most glorious picture that the disciples ever got of Jesus was not when he was performing any one of those miracles. The most glorious picture that the disciples ever got of Jesus happened while he was praying. Meaning, the most beautiful picture that you will ever get of Jesus in your entire life is not going to happen from some secondhand account through a sermon. It's going to happen when you encounter him in prayer. Prayer is where you will see the greatness and the glory of who God really is. Prayer is the place that you will see how big he is, how worthy he is, and how much he matters. Luke chapter 11, verse one. Luke tells the backstory of what has become known as the Lord prayer, which Andrew just read Matthew's account. But in Luke's account, he gives a little bit of backstory and he says this, he says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And I love that Jesus was playing, praying in a certain place. He had a place that he liked to go and pray. If you just want me to get really practical, you just need to find a place that triggers you to pray. That when you go to that place, it makes you think, oh, I pray in this place. Maybe it's your car, maybe it's your office, maybe it's a guest bedroom. I don't know where it is, but you need a certain place to pray. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he had finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray. Now think about this. They heard the greatest preacher preach the greatest sermon that has ever been preached. And they don't say, teach, teach me to preach. They saw the greatest miracle worker work the greatest miracles that have ever been worked. And they don't say, teach us to work miracles. But they see Jesus pray. And they say, teach us to do that. Teach us to pray like you. Now, Why? Why would they ask Jesus to teach them to pray? Had the disciples never prayed before? They didn't know how, like, bow your head, close your eyes, let me pray for you. They, they, they didn't know. No, of course they knew that. These are Jewish boys, conservative, orthodox, Jewish boys. We're gonna talk about this more later, but they prayed three times a day. They were more devoted and committed to prayer than we have ever even dreamed of being. They knew how to pray, but they didn't know how to pray like Jesus. Jesus prayed altogether different than anyone had prayed before him and it evoked this curiosity within them. Jesus, teach us to pray like you. And I think the reason that they wanted to pray like Jesus is because they knew that everything in Jesus' life came from the place of prayer. Like I want for you to get this tonight, that everything in Jesus' life, the miracles, the power, the influence, the endurance, the ability to deal with the doubters, the ability to be misunderstood, his authority as a teacher, his understanding of God as his father, all of that came from the place of prayer. All the power of Jesus' life came from his prayer life. They knew that. They knew that he was tapped into something in the secret place when he prayed that transcended Anything, any power, any authority that anyone had ever walked in. So they said, Jesus, teach us to pray like you. Teach us to pray like that. Leonard Ravenhill, an old great revivalist and preacher, he says that no man is greater than his prayer life. No man is greater than his prayer life. And I think that Jesus agrees with him because he says this in John chapter five, verse 19, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son of man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Meaning that Jesus got all of his marching orders from what he saw from his father in prayer. So when Jesus woke up in the morning, he started to pray and he goes, all right, God, what do we have for this day? What are we doing today? Where are we going today? Who are we loving today? What miracle are we performing today? Who are we serving today? Jesus got all of his marching orders from God, his father. 
Jesus' followers followed suit in this reality. Immediately following Jesus' ascension into heaven, the 11 disciples go to the upper room in Jerusalem to wait for the Holy Spirit. And Luke accounts, he records that the activity, the first activity of the disciples was to join together, Acts 1.14, devoting themselves in prayer. Y'all, check this. It's at a prayer meeting at a prayer meeting where Pentecost happens, at a prayer meeting where the Holy Spirit gets poured out, at a prayer meeting where the church has its inception, at a prayer meeting, the church gets born, at a prayer meeting, the church gets its mojo and its swag and its influence in the world, at a prayer meeting. Uh, Jim Simbala, who wrote an incredible book. If you're looking for a book to read on prayer, this is one of my first, probably many recommendations tonight. And it's a Jim Simbala's Fresh Wind, Fresh Fire. Just read that book, it will wreck you. But um, he says this, he says, you can tell who loves a preacher by who shows up to the church, but you can tell who loves Jesus by who shows up to the prayer meeting. Now, I'll be honest. When I read that, I was like, all right, Jim, it seems like you're being a bit heavy handed, okay? I was like, sure, I mean, for sure there are some people who don't show up to church that actually like me, right? Some of you guys will get the backside of that joke later on. <laughs> After the Holy Spirit shows up at a prayer meeting, giving the church its it factor, its influence, the gospel is preached, people respond, and the movement goes from 120,000 to three, from 120 to 3,000 people that day. And what do they do? Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Prayer became one of the central core practices for the first century Jesus follower. Acts 3.1 records it like this. They were going up to the temple at the time of prayer. There were set times that the early church prayed. For, this was passed down from our Jewish ancestral roots. For um, the Jew, they would have morning, midday, and evening prayers. And for the first three to 400 years of Christianity, Christianity was just seen as a sect of Judaism. It was seen as like a branch off of Judaism, as a, as a denomination, if you will, within Judaism. And all of the first century Christians retained the Jewish practice of Praying three times of the day. Now, this next part is for free. This is just because your pastor is a nerd, okay? And um, if you were to study Jewish prayer, you would see that there's something called the Amidah, the Amidah. Let me hear you say Amidah. And central to the morning, evening, and midday practice of Jewish prayer is the Amidah. And it is so beautiful. The Amidah carries with it 19 blessings that they would pray every morning and every midday and every evening. And they would pray this Amidah. And um, when they would pray, Amidah literally means to stand. And so I want everybody to do this real quick. Can everybody stand up just to stand? And they would do this, if you went to, to temple or um, to, to the tabernacle, you'd see they would stand erect at the Amidah and they would pray and they would stand. And then this next part that they would do is so beautiful to me. And I was gonna have you do it, but there's not enough room in the pews. You would hit your forehead. So you can sit back down now. But what they would do is they would stand erect and they would face Jerusalem, the Holy of Holies, wherever it is. And I actually downloaded this app. It's pretty cool. It's called Prayway, and it can help you locate where Jerusalem is. Oh, locked in. So they would literally stand erect towards Jerusalem, no matter where they are, whether they're able to go to temple or not. They would place their feet together, and they would look towards the Holy of Holies. But then this is what they would do. And this, this part is so unbelievably beautiful. They would bow their knees and they would go, blessed are you, my Lord. Blessed are you, my Lord. 19 times. Blessed are you, my Lord. And I thought two things when I learned that. Number one, that is so beautiful and so reverent. And where is that from us in prayer? And then the second thing that I thought, was that prayer might be the world's first Zumba class. <laughs> but if I'm honest, 
I've started to do this. Like in the morning when I wake up, I just, blessed are you, my Lord. There's this other beautiful thing that they would do as they prayed the prayers is they would take, so some Jews, they would take three steps forward as they would begin the Amidah. And it was this sign that I was entering into the presence of a king. And then at the end of the Amidah, they would take three steps backwards, acknowledging that they were leaving the presence of greatness. But do you know what I think is so beautiful about Christianity? Is that because we've given, been given the Holy Spirit, God has poured out his very presence in our hearts. When we step into the presence of the Lord by the blood of Jesus, we never have to step out. But we get to carry that presence with us everywhere that we go. But how is it that the Jews have such reverence for the presence that they encounter in the Amidah or in Tabernacle? And we forsake the presence that we carry with us each and every day. How important is prayer to you? Continues. Acts 4.24 says they raised their voices together in prayer. If you've ever wondered why we pray all together out loud at the same time, you're like, man, this is just confusing. They'll just be like, all right, everybody together. We're going to out loud on the count of three, just pray together. And you're like, can God even hear us? Is he confused right now? Like, how is he? The reason that we do that is because they did that in the Bible. God loves to hear this chorus of his kids praying. He loves to hear that sound build up, one voice united together. Acts chapter 12, verse 12 says, there were many people who had gathered and were praying. They gathered for the purpose of prayer. When's the last time you showed up? Our only purpose is not to sing, it's not to hear preaching, it's just to pray. That's how important this was to these people. Did you know that prayer is one of the two things that the apostles wouldn't give up in the early church? So you see in Acts chapter six that this ministry of feeding widows and orphans is starting to take off and it is like the hot thing in town, okay? All the hipsters are coming out to feed the widows and the orphans, okay? But the one thing that the, that, that, that the apostles determined that they can't give away is prayer. So they're like, listen, somebody else can lead this hot up and coming ministry because we've got to devote ourselves towards prayer. Prayer is too important for us to give it up. Indicating that prayer doesn't just prepare us for the greater work. No, prayer is the great work. The great work of your life is prayer. In the book of Acts, which describes the function of the New Testament church, there are over 30 references to prayer, more than any New Testament book. The apostle Paul, who is one of the primary leaders of the early church, mentions prayer 41 times while writing to New Testament churches. There are 650 prayers listed in the Bible and over 450 of them are explicitly answered, meaning contrary to playing the lottery, if you pray, the odds are ever in your favor. God answers when his people pray. The Bible lists nine different types of prayer and five different physical postures for prayer. The first time prayer is mentioned is in Genesis chapter four. And the last time prayer is mentioned is in the last chapter, the last book of the Bible, Revelation 22, from cover to cover. It is clear that God is passionate about his people praying. Many theologians and scholars, Joe told me this this week, I didn't even know this, but many theologians and uh, scholars believe that that Genesis four prayer um, uh, that account, it, it says that in those days, um, they, beca they began to call on the name of the Lord. And that idea, those who call on the name of the Lord became the first name for worshipers of Yahweh. So before we were called Christians or before we were called Jews or before we were called Hebrews, before we were called Israel, we were called people who pray. How cool is that? Like that was the first name to describe people who are like us. Oh, you're the people who pray. You're the people who call on Yahweh, who call on the name of the Lord. The uh, title of this series, House of Prayer, is actually built out of the angriest time that we see Jesus get in the entire Bible. Like, I don't know what vision of Jesus that you have in your mind. Way too many people have like Birkenstocks and perm like vision of Jesus, you know? He's got like a coat of many colors and he's just. 
But my favorite picture of Jesus is probably more from like right here from Matthew 21, where he's like angry Jesus. Like Jesus doesn't get, I don't know when you think Jesus gets the angriest, but Jesus doesn't get the angriest when he is denied by Peter. He doesn't get the angriest when he is betrayed by Judas. He doesn't get the angriest when people speak wrong theology. He doesn't get the angriest when the poor are being oppressed. He gets the angriest when his house is turned into something other than prayer. Matthew chapter 21 says it like this. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. Now there are all sorts of things going on in this text about sacrifices and taking advantage of the poor and using the church to turn a profit that Jesus hates. But it is clear that we can have the best songs and the best experiences and the best Sermons, but if we are not people who pray, then what even is this? What even is this? What are we even doing here if it's not about encountering God? I refuse, and this is just like a stake in the ground kind of moment. I refuse to lead a church that Jesus would start flipping tables if he walked in. I do not have the power of determining whether or not we are a big church or whether or not we're an influential church or whether or not we're an innovative church, but I can make it my mission to ensure that we are a praying church, that we are a people who seek the face of the Lord. And if that doesn't elevate the significance of prayer for you, then let me just give you my mic drop moment, okay? My mic drop moment is this, Luke chapter 23, verse 46 Then Jesus calling out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus died praying. Prayer was Jesus' mic drop moment. God, into your hands I commit my spirit. Story over. I'm out. The blaze of glory that Jesus went out in is the same blaze of glory that Jesus' disciples saw the fullness of his glory in. It was prayer. The reason Jesus woke up was to pray. He habitually withdrew to lonely places to pray. Sometimes he prayed all night. He didn't do anything except what the Father showed him in prayer. He taught his people to pray. He spent the last night of his life in a garden praying, and he even died while praying. Biblically speaking, Prayer is unbelievably important. Now, I don't necessarily think that that's like mind-blowing for anyone tonight. I mean, you are in a Christian church listening to an evangelical pastor. You're not like, oh, wow, I never thought I was going to hear about this here. Prayer? News to me. No, I venture to guess that you've probably heard a sermon like this before that you should pray, that it's important to pray, that like one of the core practices of our faith is to pray. But let me ask you, are you? Are you praying? Do you feel like you're crushing it in your prayer life? Is prayer something that you should do or something that you truly want to do? Many of us end up treating prayer like a glass casing on a fire extinguisher that says break in case of an emergency. Right, like we find ourselves in a pinch and we'll throw up a prayer here and there. Blue lights in the rear view mirror, dinner with our in-laws, we'll pray then, right, in the case of an emergency. But prayer ends up being more the life reserver in case of an emergency and not the boat that we're sailing in. It's not the life that we're living in. And I think that there are a lot of reasons for that. I think that there are a lot of reasons that we don't pray as much as we should. Paul even says, we do not pray as we ought to. Paul says that, like we don't, none of us do. We're never gonna actually arrive at a place where we pray as we ought to pray. So just like deal with that. There are, there are a lot of reasons though that I think contribute to that. Like one is that you just might not feel like you know how to pray. And a lot of people find themselves there. They listen to other people pray and they're like, wait, so how many times am I supposed to say Father God? Am I supposed, Father God and then Father God and then is it the Lord and then do I pray to Jesus and is it the Holy Spirit and how many vows must be in there and do I bow my head or do I look to heaven and do I have to clasp my hands and do I have to pray before every meal and like how many times do I need to call down fire from heaven because I see people do that sometimes and I just, 
I don't know that I've got what it takes to pray. And so you just feel like you don't know how to pray, and so you don't pray. And then some people, they say that they don't pray because they're just so busy. And if I could fight against one thing in your life, it would be busyness. Like one of the best things that you could do this week is just say no to something, anything, okay? And just create some space in your life. Because I would agree that we are so busy and our life is full of such noise that there are never these moments that allow our soul to get stilled and for us to think about the fact that we actually need to pray. You know, we don't need to pray anymore because today we have money to solve all the problems that prayer used to. Like people of the past, they were in need of things. They really had to pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread because they didn't know if they were gonna eat, but all of us, we know we're gonna eat and so we don't need to pray. And so in the busyness and in the inertia and in the pace of life, we just, we're so busy raising kids and going to work and playing pickleball. And I'm not against pickleball, okay? But we're so busy with it all that we don't think about how important it really is to pray. Maybe you don't pray because you're like me and at times you just get bored or distracted in prayer. Anybody do this? Like you set out like with good intention and you're gonna pray and so you just start praying and you're just going in and you're talking to the Lord and you're just asking him for things but then you're just like start praying for big things and you're praying for a miracle and then you think about miracle whip and now you're hungry and you want a sandwich, a BLT. Yes, Lord. That's real life, y'all. And the reason you don't pray as much as you want is because you find yourself oftentimes getting distracted in prayer. Has anybody fallen asleep when they've been praying before? Okay, all right. I'm glad we got some Christians who are willing to be honest. Anybody ever felt guilty for that? Like, God, I fell asleep on you. Hey, let me just help remove some of that guilt, okay? I've got, um, I've got three kids, a lot of kids. It feels like I have 37 kids is what it feels like, but I have three kids, and so a lot of times, you know, I'll put them down for bed at night, and I'll pray with them, or I'll read with them, or I'll talk with them, or I'll sing to them, and, you know, a couple of times, they've fallen asleep while talking with me, or me talking with them, and you know what? Not once have I been upset when my kids have fallen asleep in my arms as I've been in conversation with them, and I just have to believe that your Heavenly Father feels the same way about you, so it's, like, really awesome, actually, if you end up falling asleep praying. I think that's really cool. I think Another reason that maybe we don't pray is, I, I don't know if this is true for you, I know that this is true for me, is because Christians get weird when we pray. We just get weird when we pray. And some of that I like, if I'm honest, I like the weird side of Christianity, I'm pretty into it, but some of it I'm really not, okay? Um, like, I don't know where we came up with the idea that when we pray as Christians, we're gonna stand in a circle and hold hands. Like, I've looked in the Bible, that's not in there. Like, if you've ever found yourself in this situation before, like you, you've really got to evaluate like the kind of person that you're going to stand next to when you pray, if you're going to stand in a circle, because they might have sweaty hands. And I'm here to tell you that somebody will have sweaty hands and they might not look like they've got sweaty hands, but they'll have sweaty hands. You ever stand next to somebody with sweaty hands when they pray? Or what about this? Have you ever been in a circle with somebody when they pray and they squeeze your hand? Like, what's that about? All of a sudden they're just praying, they just squeeze your hand. Mm. I'm like, stop, bro. I got sensitive hands, okay? <laughs> One time I stood next to a, a sweaty squeezer and then I went home and bathed in PRL, okay? <laughs> so you gotta be careful who you stand next to when you pray. Man, I really do think that there are a lot of reasons that we don't pray as we sh should and I get it. Like prayer for me for a lot of my life has been difficult at times it's felt tedious or boring. At times it's felt trivial. Like, I'll be real. Like when somebody's like, oh, Lord, can you just help my Aunt Esme and her ingrown toenail? I'm like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. No, I, I think the Lord cares, but it's just like, come on. Like, it just feels weird, you know, at times. What are we even doing here? And like, I've had those moments before where it's like prayer just feels like, am I just making up this like shopping list for Santa in the sky? I'm making up words in my mind or thoughts in my mind to talk to him about or I don't, I don't even know what to say right now. And so I just, I want for you to know like the first part of my message was prayer is important. This part of my message is prayer is hard and strange and difficult and um, 
uncomfortable and not always easy and it's a work and it's a process and it's learned. But this next part of my message is prayer can change your life. And I mean, like I mean it in my bones tonight for you guys to get this. Like prayer has changed my life. Like this is the part of the message that I do think is going to be revolutionary for some of you. Hey, why do you pray? Why do you pray? Get in your mind when you think about it, when you set out to do it, why do you pray? Do you do do it because you're supposed to? Do you do it because you think you need God's help? Do you do it because that's what Christians do? It's the religious thing. Like, why? Really, what's your reason, your rationale for praying? Because you got to start with why. When you don't have a why, you'll end up losing your way. And a reason that I think a lot of us don't pray is because we don't even know why we pray. We don't know what the purpose for prayer is. But I want to show you tonight what moved me from prayer being a have to to a want to, from a need to to a get to, from something that I wake up excited to do, for something that I can't live without doing. And Jesus lays it out extremely clearly for us in the Lord's Prayer. He gives us 52 words, but there are two words that changed everything for me in those 52 words. And it's these two words. It's our Father. Our Father. Can we say that together? Can we say our Father? With these two words, Jesus revolutionized prayer forever. For this group of conservative Jewish teenage boys, they grew up talking to Yahweh with reverence. He was Lord. And they may have understood God from the Old Testament as the father of faith or the father of the nations. But to understand God in this personal way as our father was altogether foreign for the first century disciples. What is so familiar for us today was radical and revolutionary for them. The fact that God would be our father. With these two words, Jesus revolutionizes prayer forever. And this is what he does with these two words, is he changes the reason why. He moves prayer from being something that is primarily transactional to something that is primarily relational. That's the shift that I want to have happen in your mind tonight. Because most people pray primarily transactionally. And for the rest of your life, I want for you to pray primarily relationally. Usually when we pray, we pray because we treat God like a genie in a bottle. And if we rub him the right way, to quote the great prophet, Christina Aguilera, then he will give us what we want. And so if we can figure out the right code and if we can say the right thing and in the right order and in the right time, in the right space and use the right language, then we can convince God to give us this transaction of whatever it is that we want. And it's not that we don't ask for God Ask God to do things in prayer. We do. We'll get to more on that later on. But that is not the primary purpose of prayer. The primary purpose of prayer is not transactional. It is relational. Jesus understood this. Prayer is not primarily about getting something from God. Prayer is about being with God. How would your prayer life change if you saw prayer as the place that you let God be your father, you talk to him as your dad, and you enjoy him as your friend. I want for you to start to think about that's why I pray. I, start, I pray now to see God as my father, to talk to him as my dad, and to enjoy him as my friend. We talk a lot in Western church culture about Christianity not being a religion, but being a relationship. We've all heard this before, yes? But can I ask you this? What is a relationship without conversation? It's nothing. And the same way that a relationship is nothing without conversation, Christianity is nothing without prayer. Prayer at its essence, like at its very core, there's so many things that it is and so many forms that it takes on and so many things that it does. But at its very essence, what it is, is it's conversation with God. It's speaking to him and hearing from him. It's talking to him and letting him talk to you. It's constant communion with him. That's what it is. And without it, there is no relationship with him. We get this in our like natural relationships. If we have 
um, if we don't speak to someone or listen to someone or talk to someone or hear from someone, we know that we don't have a relationship with that person anymore. And so we'll say this, like if we have a fractured relationship with our parents, we might say, yeah, like I haven't talked to my dad in years. And what we're saying in that is like, we don't really have a relationship anymore. Whether or not he's my dad hasn't changed, but whether or not we talk does change whether or not we have the experience of relationship. And I can't help but believe tonight that the reason that many Christians miss out on the experience of relationship with God is because they have forsaken the practice of prayer. The reason that you're not experiencing God, experiencing the love of God and the peace of God and the presence of God, the overwhelming joy that comes with knowing God, the strength that is found in him is because you are neglecting the practice of prayer. I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. I understand that we live in the most fatherless generation in human history. And many of us have a difficulty approaching our father in prayer because we have a really difficult relationship with our dad. But I want for you to know tonight that you've got a father in heaven who is literally waiting by the phone for you to call. And he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And your dad may have not kept a whole lot of promises, but your father in heaven keeps every single one of them. And he let his one son, Jesus, be forsaken so that you, as his son and daughter, could be accepted forever and ever and ever. And Jesus prayed a prayer one time that his father didn't answer. He said, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But Jesus, but God the Father didn't answer that prayer for Jesus so that he could answer every prayer that you pray from that point moving forward. His son was forsaken so that you and I as his sons and daughters could be accepted forever. And so just know that you've got a good dad who loves to give good gifts to, your, to his kids and who wants more than you could ever possibly know to hear from you. And what he has for you is grace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness. And he's got for you a love that never fails. So Jesus says, pray like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, I wanna give you two implications of that idea in heaven that is gonna hopefully change your prayer life tonight. So when we pray in heaven, we think about the future place that we'll spend all of eternity. Is that what you think about? So our Father in heaven, what do you think? When I pray, often I see on the throne, gold streets, angels, trumpets, Cupid, clouds, right? That's my, your imagery, that's my imagery. Our Father in heaven, you way up there. And some of that is probably good. Some of that's probably like helpful. It's this idea that God is above me and authority over me, that he sees what I can't see. But that's not initially what the Jew would understand. So if you would have read this originally, it wouldn't have been heaven, it would have been heavens, plural. And heavens, plural, isn't as much a place where we'll spend all of eternity as it is the skies that are above the earth. It actually speaks to the skies or the air. That would be the Jewish understanding of heavens. Now here's the thing that is so beautiful about heavens. This is gonna, this is gonna rock your world, okay? The heavens, our father who's in the heavens, not just heaven, when we pray to him, we understand that the heavens, the sky is the same as the air. And you know the thing that's so fascinating about air is that air is up there in the clouds, but air is also right here, right on top of my skin. And so as I pray our father in the heavens, I'm praying dad who sits on the throne of the universe and who is right here closer than my skin. So that's what's happening when you pray. You're getting in touch with this reality that you have a dad, a good, powerful, benevolent, consistent dad, daddy who loves you, who's right next to you, closer than close. The reason that Jesus tells us to pray this way is because he's wanting us to tune our hearts to reality. We live in a day and age that is so affected by postmodernism and the enlightenment. And so all that we think is real is what can be measured or evaluated in a lab, what you can touch or taste or sense or measure, what you can see 
But I would contend that much of what we experience isn't actually reality. It's the enemy and his schemes just pulling veils over our eyes. So we begin to think that what matters most is what you can measure in a bank account. Or what matters most is the car that you drive. Or what matters most is the house that you live in or the clothes that you wear. But what if actually reality is something that's going on deeper within, in the space of our soul, in the space of the spirit? And so Jesus is going, I want for you to tune your heart to reality, to recognize that you've got a father who loves you, who's right next to you, who's with you right now here today. And then it says this, it says, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. Now, if I'm being real, the only other time that I've seen that word hallowed used outside of this prayer was in the greatest movie ever, Remember the Titans, okay? And uh, love that movie. If you've never watched it, that's your homework for tonight, okay? Hallowed be your name. Like, do you even know what that means when you're praying that? Does it make you maybe think of Sleepy Hallow, like Halloween? Like, what are we talking about? I thought that was the devil's day. Why are we praying hallowed be your name? Like, what is, what's happening? Hallowed be your name means set your name apart as holy. Make your name most important to me. So holiness, we understand it from like a moral perspective, that to be holy means to be like moral or good or upright, right? But holiness actually is more of an idea of uniqueness or set apart other than. For something to be holy, it means that there's nothing like this. And so when we're praying, our Father, trying to get in a relationship with you, see that you're my dad and that I'm your kid, and remind myself that you're right here with me right now, not distant or far off. Help to my heart to reality. Remind me that there is no one like you. Remind me that you are the great one, that you are the most important one. Hallow your name in my life. Make your name unlike any other name. You see, when we pray oftentimes, we pray and we use God as a means to achieving our happiness. But the prayer of hallowed be your name is God remind me that it is in you that I find my ultimate happiness. That you are not what gives me happiness. You are my happiness. You are the place that I find happiness. I really want to blow up tonight you using prayer as a means to an end. Because that's the way that way too many people use prayer. It's transactional. It's a means to an end. It's a bridge that I walk over to get what I want. So if I pray enough, he'll give me the spouse. Or if I pray enough, he'll give me the kid. Or if I pray enough, he'll give me the job. Or if I pray enough, he'll heal me. Or if I pray enough, he'll come through for me. But prayer is not a means to an end. Prayer is the end. Because in prayer, you might not get God to do what you want. But in prayer, you always get God. And he is ultimately what you want. So when I pray, I'm not going to God primarily or initially or first or foremost with a list of demands or wants or desires. I'm going to prayer with one desire. God, I want you. I want to be with you. I want to talk to you. I want to hear from you. I want to know what you have to say in my life. I've got to be with you before I'm with anyone else. This is how I want for you to start to see prayer. Prayer is communal. Prayer is relational. Prayer is friendship. You don't have friendship with somebody without conversation with them. You never had a friendship with Jesus without conversation with him. I know that it's going to be unnatural at first, and you're not going to know the right words to say, and you're going to get tripped up. And, but that's how every relationship goes. Every relationship, like you're, you're learning their jokes, and you're learning their pace, and you're learning their tone, and like, like, we're learning each other all the time. You're like, I'm not sure. Is he being sarcastic or is he being serious right now? Did he intend for that to be funny or offensive? Like, I'm not sure. And the same is true with God. Like, when you start to pray, it's going to take some time and it's going to be awkward at first. But I promise you, it is so worth it. When Kayla and I got engaged, I remember people would always ask us the question that they ask every engaged couple. And it was, what are you most excited about for marriage? And I gave the same answer that every man ever gives. The wedding night. Right? It's not some like, mind-boggling thing. It just shows how much of a loser I am, okay? <laughs> but Kayla gave this answer that I will never forget. When we were engaged, somebody asked her, they, they said, what are you most excited about for marriage? She stood there sweet little introspective introverted self and she said I'm just excited to not have to go home every night 
You see, for us, when we were dating, like we wouldn't, we didn't live together. We lived in separate places for a lot of different reasons. And we would hang out throughout the day and in the wee hours of the night and eventually she'd have to go home. So she said, what I'm most excited about when we get married is to not have to go home every night and for us to just be able to be together. Prayer is the place where your soul goes home and gets to stay there forever. That's what happens when you pray. You get to go and be with God, the one who you're gonna be with for all of eternity. We all talk about this eager anticipation for heaven. When you pray, it's the closest that you'll get to heaven on earth. So prayer is the place that our souls go home to be with God. It's not a means to an end, it's the final destination. Matthew chapter six, verse five says it like this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you that they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Now note this, we're gonna move very quickly. There's a reward that comes from both parties who pray, right? There's a reward that the hypocrites receive and there's a reward that those who pray rightly receive. The hypocrites get the reward of being seen by others. But the real reward of prayer is being seen by your father. The reward of prayer is that you get to be with God. The reward of prayer is that you get to talk to God. The reward of prayer is that you get to hear from God. It's not what God does for you. It's that God listens to you. Think for a second about what, what you would give to get the most important person in your life to really listen to you. Your boss, your spouse, the president. God listens to you. That is the reward of prayer. That you get to be with him in prayer. I wanna give a real quick clarification here. The Bible's not against praying in public, okay? The emphasis on praying in private comes from the fact that God is wanting um, to give you intimacy with him, but that that intimacy with him that he wants to give you, he can't give you if you're still trying to get it from other people. And so prayer is not a place that we, we don't pray to get recognized. We pray for relationship. And when you understand that, you stop being concerned with whether or not you're saying the right words. Like a lot of people, they're so nervous to pray out loud because they're nervous about what other people are going to think. Am I gonna say the right words in the right way at the right time? Is it the right prayer equation? But when I recognize it's just about real relationship, I stop caring about saying the right holy words. A lot of people, they treat prayer like it's the price. Like prayer is the price that I have to pray. Like I need to pray, I guess I'll pray, I ought to pray, maybe I should wake up early and pray. And if I pray, then God will honor me. But prayer is not the price, prayer is the reward. It's the reward. Your prayer life will fundamentally change when you approach your prayer life with one pursuit. I want to be with him. I wanna spend time with Jesus. I wanna to speak to God, hear from him, withdraw to lonely places to be with the Lord. Do you know the only price that you pray and pay in prayer is to go into deeper prayer? That's the only thing that you give up when you give up something in prayer. That's the only thing that you lay down. Like the reward of the price is that you get more prayer. It's just like conversation. So like the more that you pray, the more prayer that you get and the deeper prayer that you get. And holds true in conversation. Like if I'm talking to you, it starts off and we're kind of like talking. And the more that we talk, the deeper that we get, the deeper the conversation goes. And we can start to talk about things that really matter. And the reason that a lot of people never get to a point of talking to God about things that matter or hearing God say deep, meaningful things to them is because they never start and say, God, good morning. I am here. Speak, your servant is listening. I just wanna be with you and hear what you have to say and get to know your voice. I used to, if I'm honest, spend time with Jesus in prayer so that I could do things. This used to be my whole framework for prayer. And so like, I would pray so that I, I could preach, so that I, I, God would give me something that I could pour out to people. And some of that's good, okay? Uh, John 15 talks about abide in me and you will bear much fruit for apart from me, you can do nothing. 
Um, but I don't think that's the primary reason that I pray anymore. I don't pray so that I can preach. I pray because I'm in love with Jesus. And I just want to be with him. And if he doesn't give me a single word to say in front of you, I'll come up with some funny jokes and do my best. I'll pray because I just, I want to know him. And I want to hear what he says to me and about me. Like the greatest things between, like in my relationship with the Lord is not what God has done for me. It's what he has said to me. The, the whispers, the confidence that he's instilled in me, the songs that he's sung over me. Like that's, that's available to you. But it's only available if you'll stop looking at prayer as something that's transactional and see something See prayer as something that is primarily relational. Like Jesus is looking for friends today. Just think about that. He's looking for people who like actually wanna be his friend. He's not looking for servants. He has no need of them. He's not looking for workers. He's looking for friends for people who wanna get away with him, who wanna relax with him, who wanna lean back into him, who wanna know his heart, who wanna hear his voice. Uh, I do just wanna acknowledge very quickly that it's not that you're not supposed to ask for stuff in prayer, okay? Like you, of course you are. You're, if you keep reading the Lord's Prayer, you'll see it gets to this whole part about asking, asking, give us his day, our daily bread, give us food, show me what to do, lead me not into temptation, deliver me from the evil one, like all these things, all these asking. You're supposed to ask, like literally another point in the Bible, it's like present your request before the Lord, everything that you could think about, ask him for it. There's nothing too small to pray about. That's not what I'm wanting to insinuate tonight. I'm not saying that he doesn't provide for us. I'm not saying that prayer is not powerful or effective at its working. I'm not saying that prayer doesn't change things or accomplish things in the world it absolutely does i'm not saying that you shouldn't ask for things in prayer i ask for everything in prayer y'all okay i ask for good parking spots all right i ask for my wife to kiss me often and regularly i ask for my kids to go to sleep on the ride home okay like i pray about everything okay i just i pray and i pray and i pray but that's the back part of prayer not the beginning of prayer you see most of us start where we're supposed to end up and then wonder why we never get to the destination that our heart so desires. Don't start there. Start with relationship. Philippians 3, 6 through 7 really changed my prayer life. I want it to change yours too. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you know what my dad does? My dad will just call me. Hey, I'm in Alaska. What are you doing? Hey, I'm in Hawaii. What are you doing? Hey, I'm in San Diego. What are you doing? Hey, I'm in the Arctic Circle again. What are you doing? Now, if you haven't picked up on it, my dad's a pilot. And at first, when my dad does this, I'm like, are you bragging? Like, <laughs> kind of... Sounds like you're bragging. But it, at the essence, I don't think that he cares as much about where he is. He cares more about what I'm doing. And when I started to learn that God really cares about what I'm doing and what's going on in my life and in every part of my life, like, did you know the, the, the first time that we pray to God and talk to God is in Genesis chapter four, but the first time that God prays or converses or talks to us is in Genesis chapter three. And what he says is, Adam and Eve, where are you? That's the first prayer conversation of God towards us. Where are you? That's what God really cares about in prayer. He wants to know where are you at right now? Where's your mind? Where's your heart? Where's your soul? Where are your anxieties? And so this verse, this Philippians 3, do not be anxious about Anything but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus made me realize that God cares about where I'm at and wants to know about what I'm dealing with. And so out of this scripture, there's this phrase that just birthed in my life that has just like ruled my life and it's talk to God about what you've been talking to yourself about. Talk to God about what you've been talking to yourself about. And I know it's so simple, but it's literally revolutionized my life. Um, this season where this scripture became real for me was like one of the most stressful seasons of my life 
We were going through miscarriages and struggling with infertility. And I, I had to fire somebody who I praised publicly. And I was dealing with like staff members, dealing with like adultery. Like it was, it was a hard season of ministry and life and leadership and parenting and marriage. And I was questioning whether or not I wanted to continue to do this and whether or not God was calling me to go do something else with my life. And I was, I was struggling. And I remember driving home. I was driving down this windy road. I was living in Canton at the time, which was probably part of the problem, okay? Um, and as I was driving around this windy road, and I'm just trying to solve the world's problems in my mind. Does anybody do this on your commute home? You're just driving home and you're thinking about all your anxieties and your frustrations and your fears and your insecurities and your insufficiency and the fact that you feel like you're so not enough and you're not living up to the expectations that you have for yourself and that everybody else has for you and you don't know how you're going to get through this and you don't know how you're going to solve this problem. You're just stressed and you're trying to do the mental gymnastics in your mind to solve the problem and you can't. And the more you think about it, the more you're frustrated. So then you just turn on Blink-182, right? Because you don't know what else to do and you're just like, let me just zone out right now. But then this scripture started to come to mind. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be, known, be made known to God. And what I just started to do in that car on that windy road is I started to talk to God about what I'd been talking to myself about. And talking to myself was doing no good, getting me nowhere, solving no problems. It was driving me into this pit of deeper anxiety and deeper worry, but that small shift of my father in heaven, who is right here with me right now, hallowed, let his name be, let him be the most important thing to me, and let me just begin to tell him everything that I've got going on, and the way that he's met me in that space has changed my life. Listen, I believe so deeply in the hour of prayer. I don't do it every day, y'all. I'm not perfect, but I can tell you consistently, my wife would vouch for this. I wake up 4.35 o'clock in the morning, awaken from my bed, can't sleep. I'm on my knees in my office praying. I'm praying for you, as many of you by name who I know I'm praying for you, just pleading the blood of Jesus over our church and my family and my kids and our future. And that's so powerful. And it has so changed my life. I have moments of stillness where I just sit with the Lord and hear from him and I'm with him. And I would love to teach you about that. Gosh, I could preach this sermon for nine more hours. Okay. But what has really changed my life is not the hour of prayer that I have in the morning as much as it is the thousand little conversations that I have with Jesus throughout the day. And that is what I so desperately want for you. I want for you to bring him into everything, everywhere, all the time. Talk to him as your dad. Enjoy him as your friend. Do you know what I learned in that season? is that in that season of beginning to talk to God about what I was talking to myself about, that God did not deliver me from the valley of the shadow of death, but he walked with me right through the valley of the shadow of death. And that confidence that he was with me was enough to carry me through. And that is available to you when you begin to see that prayer is not primarily transactional, but prayer is primarily relational. I wanna give you two thoughts, a resource, a scripture, and we'll close. First, I want to speak to the person who thinks that they're busy. And I, I specifically want to th speak to like the moms or the dads who are just overwhelmed with life right now. Because that's where I find myself. It's overwhelmed with the monotony of life. And changing diapers and going to school and running errands and paying bills and cutting grass and folding laundry and making ends meet. And you're just, you're just overwhelmed. And this all feels great and ethereal and mystical, but like you're just, you want a nap, and you don't know where this is going to fit in your life. There's a guy named Pete Gregg, and he leads an international 24-7 prayer movement, so this guy's like a prayer giant, right? And he tells this story. He was in the season of having young kids and raising kids and trying to go to the prayer room and make prayer, you know, a priority in his life, and he said this. He was changing his kid's diaper one day, and it was keeping him from being able to go to the prayer room and he was just having this battle. But he said, I remembered in that moment of thinking that Jesus, if I don't find you in this diaper, I don't think I'm ever going to find you. And I was like, that's a weird thought, bro. But he said in that moment as he was changing that diaper and wanted to just connect with the Lord in the most mundane, seemingly meaningless task of life, he started to feel the gospel unfold for him in the diaper. 
And he said, I started to see like my kids, like excrement is like my sin. And I started to see that this is what God does for me is he takes all of my filth and he changes it and takes it off of me. And he puts something white as snow on me and he makes me new and he does it for me every single day. And I was like, bro, you're way more spiritual than I am. <laughs> but also that's beautiful. And I just imagine that there are probably a million more ways that our Father wants to meet you like that. If you would just say, Father, if I don't find you in these dishes, I might not find you at all. And if I don't find you doing these spreadsheets, then I might not find you at all. And I might not have an hour yet. That may feel so intimidating for me, but like I, I need some still, quiet moments where I connect relationally with you throughout the day. All right, let me give you the resource. Um, there's so many I could give, but one that I've read lately that I just feel like is capturing the best on this idea of relational prayer is by Tyler Statton, and it's called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. Um, if you read a book on prayer, I would just encourage you to read this. It's not the greatest theological work on prayer. Don't expect that, but like if you wanna get into this idea of connecting with re relationally with God through prayer, I would encourage you um, getting this book. You can get it on Audible. That's how I read all the books that I read as I listen to them. So I hope you think that counts, but um, so check that book out. It's awesome. Another book that I'd give you, there's not gonna be a screen, but I tell y'all about this book all the time. Someday you'll read it. It's uh, Practicing the Presence by Brother Lawrence, okay? Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. I'm telling you, read it. It's gonna mess you up. Um, all right, let's do this. I wanna tell you about this daily prayer practice we've got. Can we, uh, can we throw that screen up? Real quick, we're gonna just try to invite you into this, to making prayer like relational and really make this a house of prayer. So there are uh, two things. There's gonna be men's prayer meeting on Monday morning at 6 a.m. So literally tomorrow morning, remember that practice of um, morning, midday, and evening prayer. If you wanna be here for uh, morning prayer tomorrow at 6 a.m., guys, you're gonna gather here and for an hour, right, an hour, you're gonna pray 6 to 7 um, a.m. It's gonna be phenomenal. Hopefully you'll show up. And then ladies, women's prayer meeting Wednesday morning, 6 a.m., show up here. That's just for the ladies. If you're a guy and you show up, we'll punch you in your face. So, <laughs> and then midday prayer, we're gonna do midday prayer all week this week. Um, we're gonna do it Monday through Friday. So literally we'll be here. I'll be here every Monday through Friday, this Monday through Friday from 12 to one o'clock. We would be here Saturday, but we can't because we don't own this building. So uh, we'll be here Monday through Friday, 12 to one. So if you wanna come on your lunch break and just prayer, pray. don't expect anything fancy. Don't expect anything elaborate. Just expect a real, authentic, raw prayer before our Father, the King of the universe. Um, and then finally, evening prayer every night on Instagram Live. If you don't follow us, shameless plug, follow us right now. And uh, we will do a, a virtual prayer on IG Live every night at 8 p.m. And we don't know how long we're gonna do this. Maybe we'll do this a week and be like, cool, that was fun. Or, uh, We'll continue this throughout the series. We'll let you know next week. Um, but I just wanna invite you into a very practical, tangible step of praying. All right, here's the scripture that I promised you to close with. Revelation chapter three, verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. I haven't been able to shake this thought preparing for this message that Jesus, who left heaven and became God in flesh for us, who was denied and rejected by one of his best friends for us, who was betrayed by one of his best friends for us, who took a crown of thorns 
for us, who took 39 lashes to his back for us, who carried a cross up Calvary's hill for us, who had nails pierced through his hands and nails pierced through his feet and a spear driven through his side for us, who hung naked in the middle of the day in front of a crowd full of scoffers for us. I can't help but think that he is standing outside the door of our heart in the cold of the night, knocking on the door to come in. He wants, he wants to sit down. He wants to dine with us. He wants to be with us, share a meal with us, and that we won't let him in. Tonight is an invitation to let him in. And I know it's scary because you're afraid of what he's gonna find when he gets in there. You're afraid that he's gonna knock at the door of your insecurity or he's gonna knock at the door of your identity. He's gonna knock at the door of your schedule. He's gonna knock at the door of your sin. He's gonna knock at the door of your secrets. And so you're afraid to let him in. But can I tell you tonight, he already knows. And he wants to come in anyways. It's the beauty of the gospel. And the very thing that you want to see happen in life, the freedom that you long for, the joy that you're searching for, the purpose you yearn for, the feeling of being alive that you desire, it's only going to be found when you let him in.